Reads and Writes podcast with Cody Hosterman and Jason Massey. All right, welcome to episode two. Cody, how's it going this week? Uh, it's uh, pretty good. It's pretty good. Um, we are, my family, we are flying back to the East Coast. This is the first flight I've had in over two years, and it is my son's very first flight. So we'll see We'll see how it goes. We have a layover from SFO to Chicago and then back to, to Pennsylvania. So I'm um, cautiously optimistic. Uh, I'm hoping it goes well because we would like to start doing more of these things um, with him. So we'll see how it goes. But I'm super pumped because I'm going to go visit my family, and I haven't been back in a very long time at all. So um, I'm excited. I'm excited. You might want to keep some Benadryl handy just in case he gets a little cranky. For for me or for for him? Both, right? <laughs> <laughs> what are you up to this weekend? That way, uh, I am uh, going to be doing some renovation on a house, continuing some renovation on another house. So back to the construction side of my work. Good times. Yeah. So Jay, why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Jay. There you go. See. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in. If you have any questions, no, let us know. Welcome to the club. Yeah, well, well, welcome to the the podcast. And have a you know, you know, tip your waitresses. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, my name is Jay Metz. I am a technical director for architecture systems and designs for AMD. And uh, at, as of as of this moment, I've only been here almost a year. So it's uh, still relatively new to me. It's been it's flown by. You know, we, uh, I'm trying to think the first time Jay, that's you and I met. And I think it was, I think it was really the, the three of us, I believe. Um, if I recall, uh, Jason and I were giving a presentation on, you know, our core storage, best practices and, and things like that. Yep, VMworld. And you came up, you, you came up and exactly VMworld. I don't remember even what year, uh, I believe uh, it a was, couple, a couple decades ago. <laughs> I, feel like I think it was 2015. Yeah, that sounds about right. That sounds about right. And I remember you came up to us afterwards and I, I knew who you were, but I'd never met you. And I'm like, oh, what what did we say? What did we say here? And you came up and say, oh, you know, re- really good. But man, you guys are just ugly, ugly, ugly people. But I don't think anybody who's actually met you in person would ever accuse you of that, Cody. Jason, on the other hand. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Jason. But uh, well, I got to stay off camera. <laughs> me too. Me too. No, I, um, it was funny because uh, you played it cool. I didn't think you guys knew who the hell I was at all. So I had to kind of explain my 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 reason for being there. No, I thought um, I thought you guys did a fantastic job during that presentation. And that's why I thought you were perfect for kind of doing the same dog and pony show about virtualization and storage for a SNEA broadcast. Which, by the way, um, was one of the most popular ones for many years until uh, and some of the new series just sort of pushed it out of the top 10. Sounds like an opportunity to get back in there. You know, there's always an opportunity, especially especially now with um, some of the some of the changes in virtualization and storage that is happening as a result of Ethernet attached NVMe or fabric drives. You know, um, you know where virtualization happens, where the storage stack gets moved. Boy, have we gone into a complete deep dive all of a sudden, haven't we? Um, right after that. <laughs> but but yeah, just generally, I mean, there's 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 been a lot of shifts, um, uh, even in the last five years, that I think that. Uh, 
we probably haven't yet quite caught up with bringing other people up to speed like we did back then. It was uh, people who are get, can get the information from 2015, 2016 and so on. And it's still good information, but it could stand to be updated, I guess. Yeah, I think um, it was uh, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a decent segue because, I mean, I think that was my first direct in, involvement in, in SNEA. Um, and it was a lot of fun. It was actually, I think it was also that webinar was one of the first times I think I truly did some kind of like in, you know, Jason, and I did it together, like a storage agnostic, rather vendor kind of completely agnostic webinar. And I think it was kind of fun to try to dial it down to like, all right, what are, what are these technologies and concepts that generically matter and without necessarily getting into like, oh, this setting for this hypervisor or stuff like that. And so it was a kind of, uh, gave me the bug a little bit to get into, to get into the industry a little bit more. So I, I think that was a fun, a fun opportunity. Well, let's take a quick step back and, and I, I'm not sure if everybody who's going to be listening to the podcast knows who SNEA is, or if it's spelled like sneer or like a, like a sneeze, um, you know, SNEA, phew, bless you. Um, but yeah, SNEA stands for the storage networking industry association. Uh, although to be honest, we rarely use the term. It's just generally known as SNEA. Um, and as my wife would say, bless you, uh, or Gesundheit. But what, what SNEA does as an organization, and uh, full disclosure, I'm the chair of the board for SNEA, and uh, Cody is also a member of the board of directors for SNEA. So that's why we kind of slide right into that conversation so quickly. But what we do is a combination of directing standards, developing standards, as well as uh, specifications, APIs, programming models for storage, uh, some storage networking, uh, all the way from the layer one physical hardware form factors and interconnects all the way up into the, 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 the application stack. And so um, the other half of the part of SNEA's charter is to educate. And so one of the things that we do as, a, as an organization, and Cody was alluding to this, is we create content that is vendor neutral and it's technology neutral. Now, vendor neutrality is, is obviously kind of easy to understand. What I mean by technology neutral is we don't try to promote one technology over another in general. What we try to do is we say, look, everybody's needs are different and we want to use the right tools for the job. And as a result, we're going to give you the information to help you make the determination for you. We don't get a cut of anything, right? There's no money for it for us. It's all about uh, making sure that the storage industry is um, approachable and accessible by people who may be very good in their fields, whether it be virtualization or networking or, uh, you know, my, I work in a CPU company or, you know, a processor company. Storage is not their, you know, first, you know, the, the, their first baby here. So I've, I've typically worked in companies where storage is the redheaded stepchild's redheaded stepchild. And as a result, you know, at SNEA, we realize that this is what we need to do. We need to be able to bring people who are, are intelligent knowledgeable and make it approachable so that they can understand this stuff um you know so without having to necessarily hunt and peck to find you know the, the duck duck go research of you know for four hours we can just sort of give them what they need and most of the time if you if you do a storage search or search on a storage topic in the top in the top five or six you're going to find at least one if not more SNEA articles or webinars or specifications and that kind of stuff 
So Jay, why 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 is the N in SNEA? Why 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 isn't it called the Storage Industry Association? Well, SNEA began about 25 years ago. Actually, the, the 2022 is the 25th anniversary of SNEA. And back then, the real thing about storage was networking. It, I mean, the, the reality was you'd have all these different devices all connected into uh, a, a server with a SCSI cable. There was no such thing as a, a centralized storage array if you weren't talking about something like, you know, a mainframe. So what they were trying to do was come up with ways of putting disk drives on networks. And that was where the big money was back in the late 90s and early 2000s. And at the time, Fiber Channel was the, the king of the road. It was able to do one gig back when Ethernet was doing 10 meg, right? And so... Um, the idea was okay. We've got uh, we've got SCON, which turned into FICON. That's a fiber channel technology. We've got um, SCSI, and we have SATA, and we have SAS, and all these different uh, storage protocols that um, you know we have drives that can be attached by any one of these things. How do you connect them into uh, a network so they're no longer direct attached? And what 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 about network attached storage? You know how how do you do that? And over time, these things evolved. And the name was just sort of stuck. I mean, everybody was involved in, in the development of storage networking because the actual storage devices themselves were proprietary. It was just the interfaces that needed to be you know, standardized. And that's pretty much where, where the name came from. Over time, we've moved beyond that. So networking is actually a really small percentage of it now. But the name had a, a kind of a brand recognition. Now, on the networking side, there's still you know, a lot of critical pieces in there. So I've seen, oh, yeah. you know, and a lot of the, like you said, a lot of the documentation, a lot of the training and a lot of the presentations still address, you know, that key piece, because obviously that's still that connectivity, whether it, whatever transport or protocol it might be, obviously those are very critical. So yeah, I could see where that would still need to be a, a key aspect if it's not necessarily the main aspect, but it's still a very important piece of it. Well, in fact, I think it's going to get worse in, in, in one way. So if you think about it, um, there's kind of a, a vertical approach, you know, like the stack from the, the hardware all the way up into the application. And then there's more of a horizontal approach, which is, you know, how do you get from one point to another point? And there's all like, there's a matrix of, of all these different points because it's all changing. So on the vertical approach, one of the issues that we're finding now is that there is a convergence or conflation of memory and storage. So once NVMe came out and started using memory semantics to address capacity in NAND flash, instead of using a device adapter, which was the way to do it up until that point in time, um, every sort of, everybody started saying, well, hey, if we can start treating you know, storage as memory and using memory semantics, why not try to do that so that we're using persistent memory to do capacity type things. So that's starting to blend. You're going to see a lot of storage memory hybrid, you know, chameleon, not chameleon, chimera type of approaches. Um, it could be a chameleon depending upon you know what flavor of uh, a BIOS you want to use, I guess. But ultimately the idea is that, that from whichever perspective you're going to be having, you know, you're going to be looking either from a, a memory or a processor perspective or a storage capacity perspective. And those 
paradigms are going to drive the way that companies are going to develop over time. And then you have the other side, which is the, the, the software stack, right? Um, one of the things that many people in the in data center and, and hyperscalers have heard about is disaggregation. Well, in a practical sense, what disaggregation means for storage is that you've taken this vertical software stack and you've decided to move it around. So whereas you used to have in, in almost every storage environment, all of the storage components, compression, decompression, encryption, IO, the, the whole bit, right? Data protection. All of that was self-contained co-located with the actual storage itself. Now it's not. What started off as software-defined storage is now, well, I've got a little bit of the control plane over here from this virtual machine that's running as a software controller. Now I've got this um, you know, flash translation layer that used to be sitting on the drive itself that is now possibly gonna be in the host and, and sent over a network. And now we've got compression and decompression that's gonna be handled inside of a smart NIC or a computational storage device at physically different locations inside of the network. And all that has profound implications for everything from procurement models to performance, to costs, to uh, OPEX to CAPEX to the, the physical protocols, you know, the, and the, the software protocols and the networking protocols and, and how is, how are you going to do memory? Are we going to be doing uh, memory over fabrics? And, you know, one of the things that is being discussed right now in NVMe and in CXL and in SNIA and, and even in OCP is what happens when you put persistent memory on the other end of a wire? It's obviously not just persistent memory anymore. It's not just data on a stick. And those questions have a lot of people, you know, uh, kind of getting their, um, you know, pulling on the, pulling up the sleeves and, you know, putting on the gloves and getting ready to, to start doing some interesting things. I'm just pretty, you know, excited about the fact that um, I get to be part of it from, a, from the SNEA and, and also the NVMe perspective, because I'm also in, in NVMe. I think it's a particularly interesting time in storage right now from an industry perspective, just because of, you know, I, I think, you know, 10 years ago and stuff, we, everyone started talking about, oh, you know, hybrid cloud and the private cloud, but it wasn't really particularly real. All those things are very, 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 very real right now. Right. And things are transforming, not only on premises, but obviously the hyperscalers exist. And this changes a lot of things. It opens up uh, a lot of opportunities. What are your thoughts, Jay, on like, what what's the introduction around of hyperscalers um, and uh, edge computing with that? What, what what does that mean for the storage industry? So we were talking about hyperscalers. Um, so I think I think one of the things about hyperscalers is that that hyperscalers are offering a large number of services that people can get for um, you know for their personal and corporate needs. The big question, however, as we found almost every single time someone starts to say you can move everything over into a, a hyperscaler cloud infrastructure, something goes wrong, right? Either, um, you know, either one of them has a major outage where the regions are completely inaccessible or there's a privacy breach. Um, you know, you, you'll notice that you have you have a little bit less control over the data protection you know, um, recovery of data becomes something of, a, of an onerous and costly chore. So um, there's this repatriation of some data. And I think this is what this was where we were talking about before with this kind of, of hybrid paradigm of being able to have 
some of the stuff in house and some of the stuff, you know, in the cloud. Um, everybody that I, I have talked to has some sort of cloud strategy by this point. If they don't, I don't really see they're going to be in business for all that long. It's, it's kind of foolish because of the, you know, the, the economics just make a hell of a lot more sense if you're looking for, you know, a certain type of, you know, certain type of uh, architecture or platform. However, one of the things that's kind of interesting is that edge device that you're talking about, Cody, you know, uh, Amazon has the Nitro. Um, there are a couple of other smart NIC vendors that are coming out with their own versions. Um, that's the layer that I was talking about before, where you're now moving some of these different stacks, the networking stacks, the application stacks, the, the storage stacks, and you're you're moving them around. And it just so happens that a lot of it is zooming out towards that edge, right? Who can have the most efficient or cost efficient or uh, performant or you know effective uh, strategy for providing on-site devices that will allow customers to keep the data inside safely as they want and move the data outside into the hyperscale that they need. And then conversely, if they happen to be running workloads out there, how do you get that data back into your site safely? And how do you control this? And that's where I think the smart mix and the computational storage devices, uh, and I use those both almost interchangeably, by the way. Um, and I'll explain why in a second. But that's where I think the next battleground is going to wind up being. That's why everybody in, in the you know, the, the memory space and the networking space and the cloud space are all focusing on these fancy new processors that are going to be sitting in, uh, in the, what would normally have been a peripheral device. But the reason why I put the smart NICs and the computational storage devices together in the same boat is because if you look at an architectural block diagram for a smart NIC and one for a computational storage device, they're the same thing. They're exactly the same device. And the main difference between them is that a SmartNIC has a, a priority on bandwidth capacity and a computational storage device has a priority on storage capacity. But otherwise, they're exactly the same thing. You'll notice, for instance, that, that all of the vendors who have a SmartNIC, and they call it a SmartNIC uh, offering, have an NVMe flavor of the week, right? They have some storage capability that they're looking to promote, whether it be an NVMe endpoint, a decompression, decompression, encryption, data IO, something along the lines of modifying, manipulating, and um, transmute, transmuting uh, storage, right? All of them. And then it's called a smart NIC, not a smart storage peripheral. It is specifically um, a network card that does a lot of the storage stuff that was previously relegated to either an appliance or a centralized storage array. Um, and that's why I think this is going to be kind of an interesting battleground because you also have the people who are the processor developers. Um, my company happens to be one of them, but we're not the only ones who are focusing on this area as well and starting to pay a particular attention to how does data IO move around a system and how fast does it do it and how does it do it reliably? Whereas before that was somebody else's problem. Now the hyperscalers are doing the same thing, but just kind of in reverse, right? Because up until now they've been able to do everything in-house, including you know uh, client access. But if you wanna be able to put something out into a client on-site uh, location inside of a client rack. Now you have to be able to be more open to some, a little bit more standardization, a little bit more of the, um, you know, the kind of ubiquitous needs for supplying. That's why they're getting more involved in, in um, a number of different 
uh, Sanders bodies, whereas they didn't really have much of an interest before. So we're getting interest from, from INSNIA and Indium Express and, and CXL and, and you know, Linux Foundation and these other kinds of places, whereas, you know, may not have had quite the amount of, of attention you know, before. So everybody's, everybody's waking up and paying attention that this is not going to be, you know, business as usual in the next three to four years. Yeah. I think it's interesting. I, I spoke to a, um, infrastructure executive, um, at a customer prospect. I don't remember, um, at the time, uh, about their, their cloud strategy, uh, you know, what, what they're trying to do, uh, on premises in the clouds, where are they going? And they had this strategy they called three plus one, where they were using three of the hyperscalers and the plus one was their on-premises environment. And he said the, the strategic part of his on-premises environment was very much related to the things that you've mentioned, right? Uh, the, like, the smart NICs, FPGAs, like the project Monterey, for instance, that VMware's doing all that type of stuff. Uh, NVMe TCP that goes along with that quite, quite well. Um, on-premises where he could innovate with hardware. He saw that as a differentiating part of what he could do on-premises and also bring that, of course, to the edge as, as the case may be. Uh, and that was a very strategic part of their overall cloud strategy is that we use this cloud because it's the best place to run that. We use this cloud for efficiency or the elasticity of the compute but we use our on-premises and the gear and the technology that's being built by these different vendors to really differentiate what we can do. Um, and I, I think that was an interesting point. And I think, I think these, these changes around computational storage, et cetera, et cetera, over the next couple of years, you know, and how they're, and how they're being invested in will really make, really make some fun things to build. Um, I think over, um, over the next half a decade or more as, as these things develop. I agree. Yeah. So one of the things you had mentioned earlier, you were talking about FTL, right? So the flash, flash translation layer, typically, right? Your flash manufacturers were putting that, it was embedded. Are you seeing that actually moved off and up the stack where now you have other people that are actually developing FTL code for the drive? Um, in, in a matter of speaking. Yeah. So it, it's, it's one of those things that's extremely non-trivial. Right. So um, a flash translation layer, for those who don't know, is the special sauce of an SSD. It is the thing that provides the wear leveling because um, when you do NAND flash, you, you can't just, you know, write sequentially across the drive. It's got to be done uniformly across the, the drive. Otherwise, you, you, the drive will fail for lack of a better way of putting it in, in a succinct form. So you need to have some layer, some level of software and abstraction that can identify how you're going to write and how you're going to read the data and how you're going to move the data around. And that's called garbage collection. The trouble is that SSDs don't tend to do very well when they get full. So what winds up happening is that when a host sends a message to like, a, let's say you want to do a write or a read, it doesn't make a difference. And the the SSD is busy because it needs to clean up a bunch of uh, loosely, you know, um, organized blocks and rewrite them so that you have decent, even wear leveling. You can get a serious de degradation in performance, especially as the drive fills up. So you want to keep your SSD, you know, no more than, you know, 60% um, full uh, at any given point in time in theory. Right. I'm, none of my computers have that luxury, I'm afraid, at home. But, you know, in, in, in a perfect world, that's what you want to do. So um, what what some of the hyperscalers have done is that over the last oh, five years or so, they've been working with um, NVM Express uh, 
to develop new rules for and uh, with within the protocol for being able to determine when an SSD does its garbage collection, when it does its wear leveling. And so we've gotten um, feature sets that they've got, they've got kind of esoteric and arcane names like, you know, IO write determinism and directives and, um, you know, deterministic write windows. But all it really means is that the the NVMe protocol now contains commands that the host can send into a drive to let it know when to do its job. And that way you can actually have a, a greater degree of flexibility of reliable performance. Now in a hyperscaler environment, that makes a lot of sense because the more you can put that control code up into a software layer and have that software layer distributed in a software defined manner, the more control you're going to wind up having over you know, a wide range of different devices because the devices now don't really do much more than what they're told by the software-defined storage system. It's logical um, that you would then want to say, well, why not just have the entire FTL be pulled out of the drives and, you know, and then just give me the NAND and then we'll run our own flash translation layer from a software control layer. That was a, a program called Open Channel from a number of years ago. And then Open Channel um, evolved into something that was called Denali. And then a lot of the projects inside of Denali got uh, put into the NVM Express group, uh, Zone Namespaces, which came out a couple of years ago and was very popular in, in uh, the storage world uh, as a topic. Uh, it's still very popular, by the way, but it's, it's, it's a very specific use case. Um, uh, that, that came from the Denali uh, workload. Right, so work for uh, work stream, excuse me, and um, so now I mean, as we've been seeing, there's a there's a slow progression of of removing the overhead of of flash translation into a much more abstracted form that can be put anywhere. For the most part, most companies who are using an SSD, or most companies who are using a a flash array, or most companies who are using um, you know, these kinds of new technologies really won't use that stuff too much. It's it's important for the hyperscalers. Um, but that's one of the reasons why NVMe over TCP becomes pretty cool, because now you just simply, you know, are these Ethernet attached drives where you just basically put in these shelves of drives that are directly connected into a, you know, an Ethernet wire goes into a switch. And it doesn't matter that the, the TCP may not necessarily be as consistent or the TCP may not be as, as um, performant, but you will be able to control that, that, um, that relationship between the host software and the drives uh, because by using the NVMe protocol, which sits on top of TCP anyway. So it makes it a little bit easier to do that. But you have to do, this really only becomes economical at scale. Right. So uh, somebody, uh, you know, somebody who's creating their own devices, whether it be NVMe over fabrics or, you know, or has their own array type of a system can still use these these features of the technology internally inside the system. You don't need to necessarily go back out into a hosted environment to do this, because that's one of the great things about these features. They don't have to be put everywhere in order for them to be useful. Um, but it does require a different mode of thinking about the way that the relationships of these different components are, are gonna work. And the hyperscalers are just, you know, like usual, they're probably a good four to five years ahead of the curve. Yeah, it was something I was really interested in because, you know, my history coming from a flash manufacturer, there was, you know, early on, it was like, we're never gonna give any of this FTL capabilities. And now it's working where it actually is happening, where there is pieces of 
code that are saying, okay, we're going to let you control this on the drive. You're actually going to get some control of the NAND on this physical device. Well, if you think about it, that's one of the things that's going on with computational storage in, in one of its forms right now. Uh, one of the forms of computational storage, if you think about what computational storage is, is you have a you have a host with a processor and then you have a computational storage device. And effectively what happens is the host tells the computational device to do something, right? To process some data and then send me back the results. So we're kind of already doing that already. We're, we're, we're kind of taking this remote proxy process of an instruction and we're basically telling somebody else to go do it. And that's what that's what this relationship is. It's not the only model of computational storage, but it is a it is a very strong model of computational storage. And that's exactly what you're talking about, which is I don't necessarily want to have to deal with this, um, you know, the variability, the jitter that comes back and forth from, from being able to communicate, you know, to a storage device and then, you know, having to deal with, you know, the interrupts and that kind of stuff. I'll just tell that guy to do it. That guy just happens to be another processor that happens to be processor co-located in situ with the, with the storage and the environment to run that particular program to do that. And so, you know, we're, we're seeing that this, you know, this kind of, uh, Offloading and shifting is going to be very interesting in, uh, now, but it's only the first step, right? Because what happens when those devices start to talk to each other? Now, right now they don't, but in the future, there's nothing to stop them from saying, I'm going to put them onto a, a cache coherent link with CXL and have those devices talk to each other and then come back to a main host processor. Because that's exactly how high-performance computing systems work. Right. The way that HPC works is that you effectively have a program that's run on satellite processors and then the results come back to that host processor. And there's a couple of different ways that that works, you know, but uh, effectively when you start having these these devices that can communicate with each other without the need of a command and control architecture that's so rigid that the host needs to talk to each and every one of these devices but they can tell they can send a command where they can then talk to each other then you have some pretty interesting um you know scenarios that's a future situation uh, but, but it is it's probably an inevitable one so yeah i think i think uh, one thing that's I, I found always interesting about your career path um is while you're um a very present figure in the storage world you haven't gone to traditional storage companies for your your jobs right you've been uh, you know as a QLogic, cisco rockport <laughs> now, now you're at amd and so i'm just kind of curious um is was that a a comedy of errors was that a choice do you prefer that side of it i, I just it's it's very interesting to me um and, and obviously there's a storage relationship across the board there i just kind of curious was that is that your what what drove that path a dumb luck <laughs> i mean so so okay so my my career path has been more of a career question than anything else to be honest um i started as a college professor teaching uh, mass communication and communication technology. That was that was what I taught back in the 90s. And um, I started up my own consulting company to effectively um, help people with their customers online. It was it was kind of the ability to be a consultant for social media 15 years before the word was even coined. 
Um, as you can see, I was a little bit ahead of the curve and it didn't work out quite so well. So <laughs> the first influencer. <laughs> oh God. Oh God. Oh God. Please. Oh, God. yes. <laughs> please, please send me a nice cute top so I can promote your, try your product. Um, so I, I started working on the consulting, but that, that then unfortunately, um, Enron scandal happened. The, the, the market crashed. I lost all but one of my customers and I had to pivot very quickly into uh, being an Apple consultant because I was doing a lot of uh, Apple work. So um, I, I became a consultant, an independent consultant for doing servers and storage with Apple products uh, just at the turn of Mac OS X. And which was fine because most of the people who didn't want to learn Unix, didn't want to learn how technical the Macs were becoming. They were used to the very user-friendly uh, interfaces with, uh, with System 9 and before. Then I got hired by Apple to become a system engineer. And so I was basically doing server and, and, and storage with, uh, with Apple as a system engineer in the UK. But in uh, 2007, Steve Jobs... Uh, stood up on stage the night before the iPhone launch and uh, said to everybody in attendance, which was the entire company, we had this, this town hall that was worldwide, and basically said that if you wanted to be in an enterprise company, you're at the wrong company. And I went, damn it. Because <laughs> because there's a, there's a cachet. You know, there was a cachet for working for Apple, and and I liked working for Apple, um, but I I did not want to do iTunes, um, you know, my entire life, and that was exactly where I was going to be going. So QLogic called me up and said, "Hey, look, um, you know, we're doing this thing, this crazy thing called Fiber Channel over Ethernet," and uh, I said, "Well." Um, Okay, I got to tell you, I don't know anything about that. I said, I'm, I'm, I know a little bit about Fiber Channel. I know a little bit about Ethernet because uh, I happen to learn both of them at the same time. They're like, perfect. You're exactly what we want. You know, <laughs> young, dumb, and stupid, and don't know, don't know <laughs> to say no. <laughs> so um, I became the, you know, the solution architect for FCOE, and then um, QLogic decided to go into a different direction, and then Cisco hired me to be an FCOE product manager. And that became a fiber channel product manager. And then that became a storage product manager. And then that became a research and development engineer. And, um, and with all the changes in the 2010s that Cisco was going through, um, it became obvious that uh, fewer and fewer people were storage savvy. And I was having a very difficult time trying to reach an audience. And so I decided that I was going to try my hand at something different. But Ultimately, at the end of the day, I've I've always come back to storage, and I think one of the reasons why I like storage is because it is to to me it is the it is the end all be all of the data center. If you lose your data, you lose your life. If you lose your network, you can get that back. If you lose a VM, you can re re reboot the damn thing. But you lose your data, there's no margin for error. And I like that precision. I like the fact that it was that um, you know. Uh, persnickety. There's a word for you. You know, you know. yeah. But Put that in the show notes, Jason. Yeah. You know, it's podcast number one being persnickety. Anyway, so I, I just, I just like the idea. Let, let me give you, let me give you a really good example. I, when I was working at Cisco, I had to go to a children's hospital and who was a client and 
um, sat down in the in the in the meeting with with the customer, and they were talking about. This is one of those moments where people, you know, will tell you what they like and what they don't like about your product, and what they do and don't like about your solution. Well, in this particular case, when they found out that I was the, um, I was the the basically the guy for FCOE for um, for their product, they all of a sudden were over the moon. They absolutely loved it, and they said we went from. Um, we would have downtime somewhere in the order of, of like, you know, 10 times a week to not having any downtime in over a year going from iSCSI to SCOE. And I mean, it was, it was one of the best justifications and validations of the work that I had been doing because every single time they went down, they would have to fill in the, the patient records by hand. And these were these were kids who were going into surgery, you know, sometimes, you know, the, the, this was a it was a children's hospital, obviously. And they were looking to, um, you know, they were looking to try to prevent that from happening because you don't want to, you know, you don't want to do with anybody, you know, but there's something particularly heartbreaking about a kid with cancer who can't go into surgery because the nurse has to write in the nose by hand. Um, and so it was just one of those moments where I'm like, OK, this is this is why I do what I do. And from that moment, I realized that, okay, I'm, you know, I may not necessarily see a difference. I can, I, there's no direct link I can trace to it, but I'm pretty sure I had something to do with that. And I was like, okay, this is where I belong. I, I belong in a storage world. Yeah, I, I, I feel the same way. I, I, that's one of the things that initially attracted me to storage was just to like, it's just so fundamentally important. And I think that's also what dragged me, um, drag's not the right word, but brought me into disaster recovery in particular earlier in my career around understanding replication and why that mattered. Because like when I would take a step back and think about it, I was like, this isn't just about writing a paper and talking about some technology that it can do that can move some bites. Like, no, this is like protecting businesses. And to your point, those businesses uh, can be life supporting businesses. And so it's, it's something that's never going to go away. Um, and I think continually interesting interesting. Now, the one thing I remember when I first introduced it in storage was back in college and I took a storage storage foundations course, my professor said iSCSI was going to take over the world. And that has not happened yet. It's not happened yet, <laughs> yeah. but, um, Maybe, maybe the spirit of his concept is correct because I think Ethernet is 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 making some moves here. Well, I, I think one of the one of the things that happened with iSCSI was the same sort of thing that happened with iWork. You know, which is that in theory it it it, it should be fine, but the problem wound up being that in order to get the kind of reliability and and performance consistency. Right. Um, you have to do some pretty unnatural acts to your network. And that made it very difficult to, to do. I mean, I remember when we were talking about, you know, fiber channel and FCOE and iSCSI when we were talking about your, your, your webinar, right. For first Neo. And we got stuck because all of the stuff that we did for making your VMs work better with storage networks was iSCSI. We didn't have anything for fiber channel. We didn't really have anything for FCOE either, which at that point in time was just announced for being a software initiator, right? And the reason, you know, I would you told me, and, I'll, and I remember this, was that there just really wasn't much to talk about with Fiber Channel because it worked. But there was a whole bunch of stuff you had to do to make iSCSI work properly. And a lot of things that were just, you know, uh, problematic for people, unfortunately, just made it look like, you know, iSCSI was the focus because it, it was, there was just not much to talk about for Fiber Channel. 
Now, iSCSI in, in general has um, some really good ideas, but the but like a lot of good ideas, you have to ask yourself what happens when you go big, you know. And iSCSI at large scale um, can cause a great deal of problems, especially if people try to do things with jumbo frames and and you know mixing and matching, you know, um, you know settings, especially if they've got different uh, OS settings for the initiator part, but. NVMe over TCP kind of solves some of these problems, right? So a lot of the um, a lot of the work that was done on NVMe over TCP is much more robust than the iSCSI protocol for a couple of different reasons. One, um, the way that the NVMe packet is is distributed inside of the Ethernet uh, frame, uh, it can be either you know one to one or many to one or a one to many. Uh, it's basically you know two. When I say many, I mean two. Really, um, you can you can put in multiple PDUs um, into an Ethernet frame, uh, which is better than what you can do inside of an iSCSI because the sequence for each transaction is included, whereas it's not in necessarily an iSCSI. Uh, you know, frame. So retransmissions can happen much faster and you only have to retransmit the one that is out of sequence as opposed to the entire sequence. And that caused a great deal of improvement in terms of performance, reliability, reduction in jitter and variability. And um, not only that, but it carries an NVMe protocol that doesn't have to be translated. You know, so once you once you actually get to the other side and it gets decapsulated as an NVMe, you know, command or, um, you know, completion queue or completion queue entry you don't have to do anything else it's just it's just there there's no additional processing needed in order to translate that into something that you know you can put it into um, host memory that winds up being very interesting when you combine it with the additional features that you can put inside of nvme that you really don't have for for uh, some of the previous protocols like SCSI. You know, the, all that stuff you can do about telling the hard drive not to do garbage collection or only do the reads and writes when um, when this particular, you know, uh, command set is, is not happening. Those kinds of commands that the drives and the protocols and the networks are all in sync with just was not happening with iSCSI. I think I've completed my storage bingo card because the middle of it is always dunking on iSCSI. So like we, 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 we waited till the end there. So. <laughs> well, you, you, that was, that was, that was stacking the deck. Man. You asked the question. <laughs> yeah. I love that one. Over. We'll have to see. Oh, is iSCSI going to come up in every one of our episodes? <laughs> it's a drinking game now. Right. Let's spot the pineapple. Well, Jay, thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate having you on the show. Where can people learn more information and how can they get involved in SNEA? Oh, excellent question. So I do write uh, from time to time. My blog is very simply jmetz.com, J-M-E-T-Z.com. And um, my I can be found on Twitter at Dr. J Metz, D-R-J-M-E-T-Z. And then SNEA.org is the best way to go and find out more information about uh, how to how to participate in SNEA. And we're always looking for for people who want to contribute. And uh, and even not, we got lots of stuff for people to consume, too. Well, um, you know, uh, we we may not be 100 percent reads on this podcast, but we are 100 percent right. So take it home, Jason. Is that your, is that your tag phrase? It is. Cody came up with that one. I love it. I'm doing it until oh, he tells me to say no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're definitely putting that one on. Cody had that one. I was like, that, that's a good one. Spot on. All right. Well, thanks so much for tuning in. 
and talking with Jay Metz. Thanks again for, for being our first guest. Oh, thanks for inviting me. I really appreciate it. I didn't realize I was the first guest. It's, it's quite an honor. Thank you. I'll have lots of information in the show notes. And until we see you next time, thanks. Thanks.